Hello, and welcome to the latest entry in Hagley History Hangout. Hagley History Hangout is a program presented by the Center for the History of Business Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, this program centers on the latest research and publications coming out of Hagley's collections. On this week's entry, I'm interviewing Dr. Katina Manko on her recent book, uh, Ding Dong Calling, or <laughs> excuse me, Ding Dong, Avon Calling, The Women and Men of Avon Products Incorporated. So got my copy right here. Uh, so what drew you to this, or before we get into that, can you give us a bit of an overview about what your book is about? Oh, yes, of course. Oh, and um, introduce yourself too, of course. I'm sorry, I'm so eager to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I'm Katina Manko, and uh, I guess I should preface it by saying that way back when I was a graduate student, I was a Hagley Fellow. So uh, this is a book that not only comes out of the Hagley Archives, but um, uh, out of the University of Delaware and the Hagley Program uh, at the time. And so this came from a dissertation topic uh, that I had uh, developed through as a Hagley Fellow, um, which is kind of neat. Um, so Ding Dong Avon Calling is a history of the Avon Corporation. Uh, and as a history of the Avon Corporation, it's both about how the company developed and how it was managed. Uh, but Avon ladies are a another kind of interesting layer in of business owners in that they are all independent contractors. Um, and so technically they own their own business under the umbrella of Avon. So it's, it's a book that tries to be about this uh, conversation, this marriage between these two very different types of and uneven types of business owners between the big box, this you know multi-billion dollar corporation, and then all of these millions of small business owners who were Avon ladies. How did you arrive at your interest in this topic? By accident. <laughs> well, not quite by accident, but um, I had wanted to study women in business uh, as a graduate student. And most everything that we were studying was about women as laborers uh, or women as consumers. Uh, women who worked for corporations um, or worked with different types of technologies. And, you know, and, and as laborers, that was, that was very important. Uh, but I wanted to know more about women in middle management. Um, and I wanted to know more about women as, as business owners. So initially, um, Avon, uh, Ding Dong Avon Calling was going to be a book that was about Avon ladies and fuller brush men. I was thinking very much 1950s, 1930s. Um, and I thought there would be a neat juxtaposition of corporate archives that you could have the Avon Corporation that contracted almost wholly with, with women and the fuller brush archives. Now at the time, um, I, I've since learned that they have been located and, and they're at the Smithsonian. However, at the time I couldn't put the two of them together. Uh, and so in the interest of expediency, um, I shifted everything over um, 
to Avon. But really, it was it was by chance. Uh, and Delaware was home, Wilmington Del or Newark, Delaware was home to an Avon distribution plant. Um, and I used to drive by it almost regularly on my way between the University of Delaware and, and Hagley. And so it just became uh, something that I decided to, to continue poking at and, and seeing what was there. And then of course, it turned out that there was this massive archive that um, was just ripe for writing a, a history. That's one of the, uh, I've been working all morning for how to phrase this question. So apologies if it's a bit awkward because I've gone back and forth on how I want to say this many times. Uh, <laughs> one of the core issues in your book is how Avon deals with the changing roles of women in business and society. And it seems that there is always a massive amount of contradiction at the heart of the company. How, how do you navigate that both at, like as a researcher and then as a writer, like in how you tell this story? Oh, I may need you to go back and remind me of where this is heading. I probably should have taken some notes on that. So yeah, Avon is this, in, uh, I guess any direct, sales corporation, any corporation has to deal with this, this massive contradiction. Um, but for Avon, uh, and when it was called the California Perfume Company, which is from before 1938, um, essentially its first 50 years, which is, a, which is quite a long time, uh, Avon was very clear, California Perfume Company and its founder, maybe I should even speak about it in terms of its founder, David McConnell, because he is really at the core of this philosophy about women in business in the early 20th century. Maybe we can call it the early 20th century, the 1890s through the 1930s. Um, and so he is, uh, was first and foremost for me, this uh, voice, this corporate voice, um, who was remarkable for not um, specifically suggesting that his that while he wanted women to be selling his product he never like stepped back to justify it in any grand way that um in his mind seemed necessary um it seems that for as historians we we kind of are looking for how corporations may have wanted to shape a business for women um as if uh, being women was really central to what they were doing. And I don't think it was for McConnell. Um, McConnell was looking uh, to recruit women. He used women to recruit. Um, and from the early, both his writing and other people within the corporation, no one seemed to really be suggesting that this was a huge deal that this was out of the ordinary, that this is something that they had to like explain to the public what they meant. Um, it, be, it was very matter of fact. Um, and maybe that comes from the rural nature of, of how McConnell structured his company. Um, he was not looking in cities. He was not looking um, in big department stores. He was not contracting with other large corporations. Um, He's not contracting with men in the traveling trades. Uh, instead, he's going for rural housewives. Now, McConnell is himself part of that ruralness. Um, Suffer in New York 
uh, where he's from at the time is a very rural place. Um, I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't do a huge amount of research into his personal background. Um, but the women who are in rural economies uh, tend to flow into um, kind of lower stakes business uh, pretty seamlessly. And so for women who were selling to neighbors, uh, who were selling to other households, who were selling to families, uh, women were always part of this kind of informal economy. And that's where I think he, he tapped into. Now I'm getting a little bit away and I may need you to re remind me of where we were here because um, McConnell too, uh, you know, he last is head of this corporation into the 1930s. Uh, he's quite elderly at the time he hands it over to his young son. Um, and at that point in the 1930s and 40s, Avon is part of a much bigger corporate world. Um, even still, um, Avon does not seem to need a excuse for why they are hiring women and women only. It had become at that point very much part of its corporate culture that women would be selling Avon. Um, and so maybe that's part of how that the company kind of just navigates that, that transition um, over. Is that what you were asking? Or keep it going because I know yeah. your question kind of like that spanned into the 20th century and then asked me to switch lenses as well. Yes, I'm so that is a very broad ranging question because it is also attached to the other thing I was curious about that you did uh, highlight on is why the rural focus over anywhere else that seems like it could bring about as many challenges as opportunities for the company. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, it, it, it is pretty remarkable because um, many brand name companies are selling into urban markets. Um, they're using much more modern uh, advertising. I think one of the things that I noticed and I think stands out throughout the book is Avon is forever behind the times. Um, it's not doing mass marketing. It's not buying ads in magazines. It's not doing any advertising at all. Um, and his distribution method is incredibly inefficient because in order to sell $30 worth of products, they have to wait for a woman like to pull together an order to get the money, to send it in. They send out tiny, hundreds of thousands of tiny little packages of material at a time when what, what, do we, what are we trained to look for in, in business history in the 20th century? But mass distribution, right? There's no mass distribution here, um, but it becomes very, uh, economical in the sense of what the company is not spending money on. And so um, it just keeps these kind of personal relationships between traveling agents, the women who recruit, the women who are selling and their customer base um, and uses a kind of a post office style communication to keep things moving um, and they make money at it. It does not follow a model uh, that I've seen anywhere else in business history for in the in the 20th century. It seems almost as if they're making a deliberate choice to place the development of interpersonal relationships above virtually everything else. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And was that uh, sort of, uh, I kind of hesitate to use this phrasing, but was that a deliberate choice to empower women? 
on the part of the company? I don't know. It did. It had that effect. Um, but there's nothing that's overtly political that you would label as feminist in their, in their literature. Uh, the women who do the recruiting, who become kind of the mid-level managers for the corporation, they're very conscious about what they need and what their options are. Many of them are single, many of them are widows. Uh, the women who are, are doing the, rec the recruiting who can end up with really nice salaries uh, for themselves. Um, but at a cost, you know, at a cost of being away from home six, eight, 10 months a year. Uh, they like that adventure. And the women who are very kind of very forward about that, right? Um, I don't think they put it though into a much bigger political trajectory. Um, it, like I said, the, the feminism is, is there and it's underneath, but it, it's not overt. They're not trying to make a statement. Um, beyond uh, kind of an acceptance, a tacit acceptance that women can be empowered through earning cash, right? That women need money. They need earning opportunities. They need to be able to balance their homes, their families, um, and they need income. And here we can help provide it. Um, and we're going to find you if we can. It seems really funny to me that they never seriously considered that, given that it seems, at least with the benefit of hindsight, fairly obvious that they're sowing a lot of seeds there to push for, well, the eventual rise of women within the company. Uh, yeah. I'm especially thinking about to, to move us uh, into mid-century for this is, I think it was in 1935, that they started to permanently settle some of the traveling agents and have them establish their own offices. Like how just reading that, it seemed fairly obvious to me that eventually these women are going to want to move up higher since you're giving them the opportunity to earn more money and geographic stability. I think they really have a, um, a, a two tier system in, in mind because there's the men at the home office and in the headquarters who organize the campaigns, the sales campaigns, who organize the manufacturing of product and the distribution networks. Um, and then there's the women in the city offices who are training the representative staff. Um, and I think they see those as so separate that the women who are organizing the city offices um, are brought in only as guests into headquarters occasionally. Um, and it's, it's just not a career path that's, that's on their radar. It really won't be until the 1970s um, that Avon will start to think more carefully about women at headquarters. So um, again, that, that two-tier system of, of the business. Um, there's, the, there's the headquarters and home office business, and then there's the millions of women who are the independent businesses. And so the, the city sales uh, managers who train all of those uh, representatives um, are performing, are working for the corporation, but they're also in that halfway point of um, getting some commission. They get um, bonuses based on how well their, their office is doing. Um, and maybe the geographical distance matters uh, that, you know, women in cities in Pasadena where, you know, Avon headquarters isn't located, uh, helps the men at Avon keep those 
those business tracks separate. Um, but they, they really do see the management of the company as something that men do. And then the management of the sales staff as something that women do. So is this almost uh, another extension of uh, independent contractors versus regular employees then since anybody on a commission seems to be on a totally different track, even though it, it seems like they're in both tracks realistically. Yeah, so the city, this, the women in the city offices are definitely on both tracks and they're more corporate than they are um, independent contractor. Uh, but there just, there just doesn't seem the opportunity for crossover that someone in a small city in, we'll say Dayton, Ohio, just to name a small Western city is, they're not expecting her to um, pick up everything and move to New York or Morton Grove or uh, anything like that, that um, they see them as like, this is where you live and this is where your business is. So those women in the city offices are there. Although, you know, hey, that said, if, you know, for the 1930s and 40s, they were moving city office managers around as well, um, taking into account their family situations. Are you married? Do you have children? Can you travel? Um, and they were quick to move some of those more mobile women um, around to help set up uh, city offices. The men of Avon, um, I was just reading through, I um, kind of looking through, through my papers, there was um, a memoir of a woman named Anna Figsby, who started off as an accounting clerk in the 1890s uh, with the California Perfume Company and stayed there through the 1950s. So she had a very long uh, career. And what struck me um, for uh, Anna Figsby was that the way that she introduced the men who would become the corporate leaders of the 1940s and 50s, um, even the 1930s as they started to play with advertising. Um, and Avon was known as a company, as I think a lot of companies were, that took in young men. So John Ewald, who will be the president and CEO of the company in the 1950s, um, begins as an 18 year old office clerk. And so she describes him sitting there like this 18 year old kid sitting, watching the back of his head and um, how intent he was and everything he wanted to learn. And um, when you look at the corporate officers of Avon in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, you see men who had started there as young kids, um, fresh out of, well, I was gonna say high school, but they might not have been, high schools really weren't invented yet. Um, but you know that, that they took young and they they kept them with the company for a very long time. So I guess it's just to say as, as a balance of why aren't women coming in from the outside? Well, because Avon also has a culture of, of promoting its men from within as well, from, from being young. And again, is that a deliberate choice of corporate culture? Yeah, very clearly so. Very clearly so. Especially when McConnell was in life, he had this sense of values of of how you treated each other and, and how the company would treat its employees and how it would treat its um, representatives. Um, and that paternalism of raising a, a corporate man was very, was very clear for him. You, uh, earlier you talked about Avon seeming to be perpetually a bit behind the times. Do you think uh, some of that could possibly stem from just 
the sheer amount of time uh, McConnell Sr. spent at the head of the company. Oh, could be. Yeah, he, he was very conservative. He didn't take a lot of he didn't take a lot of risks. Um, it was his son who wanted to open city offices, and they were very uncertain about how to do that. And his son only ran the company quite briefly before Iwald take o- took over, yeah. right? Yeah, he died early. Hmm. I think he lived a very happy life. <laughs> uh, so as we you know, keep barreling through the 20th century here. Uh, what do you think is the next logical place to go? Uh, Avon opening up uh, sales representative positions to women of color or going right to the, well, let's talk about that first. Of the 1960s? Yeah. 1960s? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, Avon is very, uh, self-conscious about looking for white women, although kind of like with feminism, they don't say it out outright. Um, they have a few policies in the 1940s, 30s that talk about not recruiting uh, representatives in black neighborhoods that they had some policies of if you, if uh, a African-American woman was recruited that she couldn't purchase on credit. So her customers had to pay for their orders up front as opposed to white customers who you know, put in an order and then would pay for it when they got it. Um, but it's in the 1950s, I think that two trends happen that start to push Avon more and more into African-American neighborhoods, uh, Latino neighborhoods. One is that, that it becomes much more international. Uh, moving into Latin America, into Cuba, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Mexico, Brazil, uh, just to name a few. Um, And so there's a sense that they're going to be using their products uh, in a more diverse customer and representative staff. Uh, And at the same time, they finally get into onto the civil rights bandwagon in the 1960s. I give them a lot of credit Um, in the 1960s and with affirmative action in the 1970s, they're serious about it. Um, They try really, they make, they stumble, they make a lot of mistakes. They say things that we look at now and and are very cringy, Um, but they're much more earnest um, than than I think a lot of American companies might have been um, about increasing representative uh, African-American in not just the representative staff, but in the corporation as well. Uh, I don't go into this too much. The archives at the, uh, it just didn't quite fit in the same parameters of of what I was looking at. Um, But certainly where African-Americans are working for Avon tends to be in those distribution plants and in the manufacturing. Um, And so Avon tries very hard to, A, count them. who, how many, where are they working? What are their pay rates? Um, and so it's both an internal company decision as well as um, an attempt to reach out to more representatives in the 1960s and 70s. At the same time that the company was doing outreach to the African-American community, uh, were they doing any sort of outreach to uh, Latino or Asian American communities too? within the United States. Or globally. Um, yeah, I mean, worldwide, certainly. Uh, within the United States, I'm just not as familiar with it. Um, the 1970s and 80s, uh, a lot of that has to be read through advertising uh, because the nature of the archive 
changes when you get, especially as you get towards the 1980s, uh, the corporation saves much less. Um, so it's harder to see motivations behind the scenes. Um, it's harder to find drafts of, you know, how the company is thinking about making a public statement, um, how they might change their language. So a lot of it has to be read through advertising. And just as a historian, I'm, I'm uncomfortable using advertising as a solid piece of evidence of what a company is thinking, if you know what I mean. Um, so I, I, again, I have to, in terms of the American domestic market, 1960s and 70s race in all of their literature is really defined as black and white, right? You are African-American or you are white. And so these other ethnicities and these other kind of experiences um, are just totally under the, under the radar. Like they're not asked about um, in different surveys from the 1970s and 80s. But throughout this period, through the 80s, the company is growing. Absolutely. Mostly international. Um, and there's other historians who talk about the international growth of, of Avon, but um, it's domestic. I'd have to go back and look. I don't, I don't, I don't like making these grand statements about it, but like their, their, Afri their American representative staff, I think peaks around the 1980s. It's, it's, you're just not gonna see it growing by leaps and bounds as uh, the company did in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. It, it levels out. So Avon's reach internationally grows exponentially after the 1970s. And their growth, at least in the United States, seemed like it tied in very well. The company grew whenever there was a recession on. Yeah. Yeah, that's true for a lot of direct sales companies. Um, kind of the, right now we call it the gig market, but you know, people looking for something to do, a way to bring in extra cash. So Avon's also part of a much bigger conversation about direct sales, um, as well as being this kind of internal company. So in addition to more people being willing to turn to that sort of work at a time when the economy is less than great, are, is it also a case of more people looking to buy something like that, since I know Avon, yeah, just remembering some of what my mother bought over the years, uh, it wasn't always the best in the world, but for what you got, it was pretty good. Yeah, I think they tried very hard to keep that reputation of, of quality products. Um, they would try to innovate with different products, different skincare routines and, and whatnot. Um, but certainly direct sales relies a bit on kind of emotional marketing of, um, I need shampoo, here's my friend, she's trying to sell it, I'll buy it from her, um, as opposed to you know, what might be in the store, a, a more anonymous sale. Um, and so direct selling as a whole does that. I wonder if during uh, times of financial stress that that comes into play. I remember a couple of stories from the 1930s of neighbors saying that they would buy a lipstick because for seven cents, you could, you could have something pretty and your friend would be happy and feel like she had accomplished something as well. So that's what I mean by kind of the emotional work of, of consumerism uh, that direct sales plays on. It's not sustainable for a lot of people. Um, you know, getting those first sales is, is fine, uh, but it's hard to keep buying to keep going back if there's other options. Um, but like you said, Avon tried very hard to, to make sure that people were delivered something decent. Yeah, that uh, also kind of got my gears turning a bit was from the 
I think it was the early 1940s with uh, cities being divided up into territories and Mm -hmm. that each territory was 400 households that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems like a really small area to try to make a living out of. Um, If you actually tried to go to them, it would be very difficult, I bet. What could you go to in a day? Maybe 30 if you were working all day at it. Um, You need 10, 15 minutes in between. Um, So say you can get to three, even if you went to three households for 10 minutes um, and you did at eight, so that's 24, 25 a day. Um, Maybe, maybe you could. Fuller Brush did that. Fuller Brush broke, broke people up into territories. Their sales managers would get three or four of them into a car um, and they would drop the men off at blocks. And here you kind of need suburban uh, uh, marketplace um, and say, you have this street, this street and this street, I'm going to pick you up at noon. You have to distribute these pamphlets. You have to you know, see how many orders you get. They played all sorts of games of who could get orders. For an Avon lady, she kind of had that territory, um, but no one was dropping her off. Avon recognized that most of them would work just a few hours a week. Vast majority of Avon ladies are not working anywhere close to, you know, multiple hours a day. Um, They kind of call their friends, they kind of see people, they knocked on some doors, but um, what the company found is that very few would even try to cover uh, everyone in that that neighborhood. so that's, the, that's the, again, the important thing here is that this is not a job that Avon is monitoring anyone by. It's just by, you know, how big is the order that you can put in at the end of two weeks or three weeks? Um, and so that 400 person territory was meant to kind of restrict her, but, but think of all the assumptions that are embedded in that. Your family lives near there, true? Not so true, especially not in the 1950s and 60s where people are on the move and some people are looking at Avon as a way to meet new neighbors, to meet new people. Tupperware made a grand um, uh, effort in this with their home parties where you invited your neighbors uh, to come to your house. It was much more efficient. Um, But Avon ladies tended to work for a very short time. And part of it might have been that notion that you're supposed to be going around to these strangers and knocking on their door and trying to solicit orders. Um, And they just really didn't. They just didn't. (laughs) They didn't do the thing. Um, And so the the 400 person territory, I, I guess it's in the eye of the beholder. You thought it would be too small. And here I am thinking there's no way she's gonna go and try to find 400 people. 400 households. I guess that would be a couple thousand people. Yeah, or even more. Yeah. Yeah, average number of children being much higher at mid-century. Right, right. So neighborhood you're in, yep. So before we uh, chronologically move into the 1990s, uh, I think we should have a sidebar here about the name change of the company from uh, California Perfume to Avon. Mm-hmm. Um, when, how, and why? Uh, the, the story that I tell in the book, um, I, I know that the, uh, in the 1930s, there had been an effort to start thinking about the, uh, removing the geographic, uh, reference to California because the company was not in California. I mean, they had representatives there, but the company was not in California. 
Um, and perfume was very limited uh, in terms of their product line. Uh, and so it, perfume that was meant to be exotic or to sound expensive, here comes the depression and, and perfume is not what people are looking for. Um, and so there had been an effort to, uh, to change both of those elements of the name. Uh, Avon had come up uh, folklore about McConnell and Stratford-upon-Avon and thinking that the hills of, in Avon, England look like the hills of Suffern. I don't know. I'm not sentimental enough to know if that's true. Um, uh, but it, uh, once it was decided that, that Avon, the brand name of the cosmetic line, uh, would become the name of the company, um, I really appreciate uh, the story of Leela Eastman, who was the traveling agent turned uh, city manager of Pasadena. Um, really remarkable woman who, you know, taking out radio ads all by herself and on her office budget uh, to say, look for your Avon lady, uh, suggested it was pretty drop of a hat and that most people didn't even realize the uh, connection between the old California perfume company and the new Avon. Uh, corporation, but that it by reusing a brand name rather than a product name kind of opened up um, a whole new line of, of customers uh, and people seeking, uh, seeking a representative for this particular product line. Uh, but I guess it's one of the brainchilds too of, of the young McConnell uh, in kind of modernizing the California Perfume Company into that kind of mid 20th century place. Um, so as we're working through our sort of overview of the company's history, I believe we were about to get into the 1990s. Right. So that's a time of crisis. It was a time of crisis. Uh, time of growth, too. I think they really thought that they would still be on that rocket ride. The rest of the U.S. economy is on a bit of a rocket ride in the 1990s. Um, Avon had tried to diversify, become a conglomerate into many different types of businesses. That didn't work so well. Um, it was certainly on the radar, uh, especially as the conversation about women in business became much more public, much more pervasive. Avon really believed it had a role to play, that its voice was important uh, for a kind of a large conversation about women in business, um, kind of unabashedly feminist at that point. Uh, and uh, rewarded as such, uh, Working Women Magazine, Catalyst, others naming uh, Avon as one of the top corporations for women to work for in the United States. And it consistently got that top 10 uh, ranking throughout the 1990s. Uh, and so it, it was really riding its laurels a lot at that point. Um, huge name recognition. Uh, all of this, you know, of, of the company and all kind of the problems and stumbles that it had to uh, say anything other than in the 1980s and 90s that this company was on an upward trajectory. Um, even when I was there in the 1990s and someone had called it a Fortune 500 company, they were quickly corrected. This is a Fortune 250 company. Thank you. This is, you know, this was no small potatoes. Um, and so I think they believe they had a lot of clout and um, I do give them credit. It's, it's so hard as a historian and, and writing um, kind of, uh, you know, history of women in, in business and their relationships to corporations and certainly recognizing all those issues. Um, but I do give women, I do give Avon an awful lot of credit 
uh, for elevating a national conversation about women, about where they belong in business, about what they can do with business, um, kind of clear-eyed about the challenges that women face uh, in starting businesses, not just within uh, Avon or as an Avon representative, but in, in the world at large. Um, and so they, they played that role. They were very conscious of, of playing that, that role in the 1990s. But still, it takes until... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> well into the 90s to get a woman in the C-suite. Yeah, 1998, 99. Yeah, there's a there's a put your put your money where your mouth is, but like, <laughs> careful, not too quickly. It, it's uh, yeah, like I say, Avon had. It is a complex company. I guess that's how you started this conversation with two. It's it's not seamless. It's complex, um, and certainly their relationship to uh, you know the path to Andrea Young was was fraught um, by its board uh, as well. Um, and they lost they lost women uh, leaders in that in those moments too in those those key years where women were you know waiting in the wings um, and not being chosen and took their talents elsewhere um, out of Avon. So um, yeah, an interesting an interesting place I think. Um, Certainly, because then as we get into the two thousands, there's the collapse of the. Mm -hmm direct sales yeah industry-wide um there's still there's still uh, uh i haven't looked but uh, if there were fewer than 2,000 direct sales companies in the united states today i'd be surprised um still a lot of companies that will start off with uh direct sales um but they all took a hit um and i think that when Avon was looking at Andrea Young, they were looking at her as someone who, with a marketing background, that was again going to elevate Avon you know, out of that cringeworthy, you know, ding dong Avon calling and thinking of you know one's grandmother at the door um, to something that would be very modern, very chic, very elegant, um, and uh, the company just could not balance that conversation of you know wanting to be a, a modern chic company with what do we do with this hundred and some year commitment to to representatives and women business owners um and so i think for a long time and, and andrea young did this was simply try to keep both conversations going but they were they couldn't they could not sustain each other and in fact they they ended up tearing each other apart and then of course the other thing that avon just cannot navigate is that you know, hundreds of thousands of independent representatives um, and the internet, how to set them up websites, how people can go online and order Avon um, and somehow get it through a woman who might be living a couple blocks away. Like it, they just could not navigate that, that change. Was that at all complicated with this change happening um roughly at about the same time as the first dot-com crash give or take a couple of years um yeah i guess it would have been i've never put the two together um i i guess so yeah i'm just thinking about the period of oh, perhaps overconfidence fall you know immediately preceding the crash 
Yeah. Oh, that could very well be. Then I know we're doing some history very much just barely over our shoulders, but how about the 2000s and the 20 teens? For Avon? Yeah. Uh, um, I'm really kind of, I'm, uh, I hate to say it, but I'm just really out of my league on that one. Um, I mean, the historical archives just, if they're, if they've even been transferred to Hagley, I can't imagine that they're available. I could be wrong, but um, corporations are much more litigious uh, now and look at those archives as as much potential problems as a potential source of, of pride of their history. And so um, I'm not sure where where Avon was other than you know what we can what we can read in the papers. Andrea Young was under an enormous amount of uh, pressure. She was not performing the way that the shareholders and the and the board expected. Uh, when she was let go, uh, the company I believe went through two more uh, CEOs. Uh, also drawn from within, women drawn uh, from within, and then when the company was sold um, and moved over to London, uh, from what I understand, they, they they spun off the Avon USA, and so Avon USA is still you know operating, and Avon ladies uh, today are working for Avon USA as opposed to the Avon products that comes out of London, and that has since, of course, been even diversified farther afield than that and if we could have a little conversation about some of your finds in the archive uh, i'm curious if you found anything that really uh stood out as your favorite or maybe even if there was something that you thought thought personally was especially compelling but there just wasn't room for in your book oh Gosh, you know, almost everything got in there. There's so many images. Um, I think for me personally, uh, no, it's not personal. It's just part of my personal interest. It's not me, you know, there's no family history connection to Avon other than what the little lipstick samples that my mom brought home. But um, it's just the pictures, the early Avon literature is filled with a lot of pictures that representatives and traveling agent, agents took on themselves to send in, as if McConnell would personally be interested um, in seeing them there with their, with their sample books. Um, the women who often got dressed up and posed, who clearly went into studios, photography studios, um, with their finest dress and carrying their sample case and their book or maybe riding their bicycle, uh, a pen in hand to show that they were business women. Um, I, I was able to include a lot of these types of images in the book. I mean, really about a dozen or so, but there's, there are so many. There are so many um, women who uh, went out of their way to take those pictures to show that they were in business. Um, and you do get that sense of empowerment, that sense that they were, were doing it because they were incredibly proud of what they were doing, that they liked this relationship that they had with the company, that it was bringing them um, a measure of control or a measure of power that they could that they could have a savings, that they could do something for their family. I, I just found them to be the most delightful uh, parts of the archive. Later, you know, you get all the corporate images, you get the staged models, you know, and it, it just doesn't have that, that feel to it that the, that the early part did. Um, 
I also, there was a couple of memoirs of uh, women who took time to write kind of their histories with it. Uh, the one that's, the, that's just a diary of uh, Louise Fogarty, who was the traveling agent as a young woman um, traveling for a few years. Again, very delightful. I like when business history can, any history really, but can kind of get down to that granular sense of like feeling that these were real people. Um, and I think that's what uh, maybe why I shied away a little bit, from, especially from the much later parts of the of the history, where, like I said, those stock photos, they're charming, they're they're interesting, um, they're filled with symbolism, but um, I like the real people. How about the poem? The poem, yes. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Friend of mine noted that, that there's a lot in corporate archives that's just a lot of bad poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and how much could we find of people who took time to write uh, a poem about it was it was to her husband right I don't yes. have time don't have time <laughs> gotta do my Avon <laughs> <laughs> all right um so I'm just rounding up through my questions I think we're getting about, yes, we're at the end of what I'd had written down. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you today that you wish I had or that you were really excited to discuss? Oh, um, no, probably think of something a little bit later, but uh, no, this was fun. It was fun to, to talk about, to remember um, uh, for, this, for this book. It does cover quite a bit. I, sometimes I'm kind of surprised how much it, the length of it, that of time that that Avon took. Well, that if I might leave us with one last final question for real then is for someone who reads your book, what is the like biggest picture takeaway that you would want someone who reads your book to have? Hmm. I uh, it has to be about women and their experience of business. Um and how the structure of business matters, not just, I guess, to everybody, um, but to women as well. And so to think about that women in business can both be uh, describing people who are working in a corporation, working at middle management, working at you know, ways of, of working up and developing uh, new talents in the interest of a corporation, uh, but that women, at you know, what we call the kitchen table entrepreneurship, that, that the level of um, women who wanna work and to have a business of what language that means, right? What that, what that takes to shape that experience of, of owning a business. Um, without going back too far, because I know we're just trying to wrap this up, I was thinking of the 1980s when Avon looked at women owning actual independent businesses, um, that the safety, that what that, experiment highlighted was that women who worked for Avon uh, and as Avon representatives had so many business decisions already made for them, right? The, the products were made, the distribution was made, the advertising campaigns were there, the, the pricing structure was already set for them. And so even that entrepreneurship of, of Avon ladies as business owners was very circumscribed. Um, and so, uh, I think that's just important to, to keep in mind for when we talk about people in business and women in business is to always bear in mind that the structure of the business that they're in um, 
really shapes their experience and reshapes their opportunities. I think that's a good note to end things on. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for sitting down with us today. And for more Hagley History Hangouts and more information on the Center for the History of Business Technology and Society, you can visit us online at www.hagley.org. And thank you again, Dr. Michael. Thank you very much.